Our God has been so wild lately. He doesn't seem to listen. He doesn't obey my commands, and we can't even bribe him with treats. He's gotten so out of hand, he may even have to be put down. God is not the problem here. The problem is the people who want to be the leader of the pack. We reintroduce God. We retrain people. You're listening to The God Whispers. Hey, welcome to The God Whispers. I'm Craig D'Onofrio. And I'm Bill Swirla. Today we're going to talk about murder. Well, the fifth commandment anyway. The fifth commandment from the small catechism, you shall not murder. Bill, what does this mean? It means that we should fear and love God so that we do not hurt or harm our neighbor in his body, but help and support him in every physical need. Okay, ready? Discuss. There you go. Uh, first, <laughs> notice notice the language here, murder. I, I believe there are two words for killing in Hebrew, and this is accurate. It's not really thou shalt not kill in the sense that any taking of life is against the commandment, but it is it is murder, which is defined as the unauthorized taking of life. Unauthorized taking Unauthorized. Of life. You are doing it without authority. So what would an authorized taking of life be? A great, I got a permit. Is James Bond? You know, he got the permit to kill, the yeah, license to kill? In season. You know, it's, it's like deer season. No, I, what, what, it, what, it, what it means is, is, for example, the soldier in his vocation, I mean, essentially the soldier has the vocation of killing, killing the enemy in defense of the innocent, in defense of the defenseless. Hmm. Uh, the other example uh, that comes up is the executioner, or Luther would say the hangman, that his vocation is to take the life of one who has taken life. And that's a valid vocation. Yeah, it was, it's part of that, what we were talking about in the last episode, in the fourth commandment, it's part of that, that governing authority that punishes the wicked and rewards the good. This is the punishment for those who take life. Good and godly vocation, a hangman. Tough, tough vocation, but 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 a valid one. It, it's really the execution of God's uh, temporal judgment, not eternal judgment. It's a little morbid, but yeah, it it someone's got to do it. Well, you know, if you stop and think about it, if the murderer gets away with murder, is that a good thing for the murderer? Uh, well, not so good for him, and definitely not good for others, and not good for society in general. Yeah, you sometimes hear this commandment invoked by people who are opposed to capital punishment, but I think that's a misuse of the commandment because for this very reason that it's it's prohibiting unauthorized murder. It means you can't exercise those Second Amendment rights that you love so much. And uh, go and stalk your neighbor because his dog pooped on your front lawn and shoot him. The dog's another matter. Doesn't really enter into the conversation. <laughs> I was here, thinking cat personally. I'm a cat person, and and yeah, well, you know, though actually, I, I got to admit, there are two kinds of cats. Okay, they're the the cool cats. Those are the ones that are indoors and neutered, and then there are the outdoor cats that are that are howling under your bedroom window, doing their thing at two in the morning, and those really need to have a bowling ball dropped on their head. All I know is is it drives me nuts that there are always cat paws, you know, paw prints all over my car. They like that. Yeah, they, they like walking on cars. I'm ready to lock and load on that one. But the 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 notion here, yeah, and, and as long as we're, it's not killing of anything that's alive. This is <laughs> oh. murder is taking human life. Good call. So our vegan friends might be a little out on a limb here, invoking the fifth commandment. Yeah, they're on, out on uh, a tofu limb on this one. On, on no steak. 
Yeah. No, Which this in is, and of itself is a sin. No you, you, can, you might be able to argue on health grounds, although good luck, and, and maybe on economic grounds, but don't do it on moral grounds. Well, I, I guess, you know, to be fair here, even though we're going really far afield on the Fifth Commandment. Early on, too, which is rare. <laughs> yeah, we're, starting, we're in rare form Starting here, on a yeah. tangent here. Uh, you know, there there is something to be said about the whole free-range thing and, and you know, the idea that uh, we do want to treat God's creation humanely. Well, I like free-range stuff. It tastes better. It does. Yeah. It does, I admit. But I also like the chickens that have been kept in a little coop and you you're know, morbid. Feet There's the, that, melded to the cage that's and all that wrong. stuff. That, you're just saying that. That's, that's well, they wrong. taste good, yeah. but <laughs> but you know, my argument on the whole vegetarian thing is, if God didn't want us to eat animals, He wouldn't have made them out of meat. Nice. Yeah, that, you read that on a bumper sticker on the way in, didn't you? I don't you? know, something like that. But so we've clarified two things. One, it's about the taking of human life, and two, it's the unauthorized taking of human life. And so as a private citizen, you don't have the right to kill somebody. Uh, if it's your vocation, soldier, executioner, that sort of thing, then certainly within the, within the exercise of your vocation, that's, that's a killing outside of this commandment. Um, having straightened that out, there's lots to talk about here. Uh, first of all, what's the gift? What's that, that, that well, center of the commandment? The gift here, I would think, would be that uh, not only am I called to protect my neighbor, but my neighbor is also called to protect me. Right. Well, it's the gift of life. Yeah. So if you look, if you look, you know, we, we've moved to the second of the horizontal commandments. The first one is the gift of human authority, God's deputy. The second is the gift of human life. You'll notice it kind of focuses, too, because the, the next commandment deals with, with our sexuality and family and that. The next commandment deals with, uh, with our possessions and our property. And so it kind of moves on. But the first and primary one is life, human life and the well-being and the physical needs of our neighbor. Hmm. So uh, on the positive side, we are, or the negative side, rather, we're not to hurt nor harm our neighbor in his body. Now, you notice the, the intensification of that again. The commandment is don't murder. But Luther, recognizing in the way of the Sermon on the Mount, that it's more than, it's more than about murder. It's, it's about um, the, it's, it's about, you don't have to kill somebody to violate this commandment. It's, it's about intent. And so Jesus said, you know, you've heard it said, do not murder. Um, but I say to you, that uh, whoever is angry with his brother is right. liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother is liable to the council, and anybody who says, you fool, is going to be cast into hell. So he intensifies the commandment. Luther does exactly the same thing. So he, he, go, he, he recognizes that most of us haven't killed anybody. That's why I stay away from fool and go straight for moron. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Legalist. <laughs> But but not hurting nor harming our neighbor; those are the sins of commission. So right. and and then and then positively, but helping and supporting our neighbor uh, in every physical need. And so so you're looking at the whole aspect of our of our bodily existence and our obligation to help and protect our neighbor, and vice versa. We live in in Southern California here. For those of you listening in one of the many countries and or states around the world. Do not move here if you're so inclined. No, stay away. Our freeways are already packed. That's and that's right. exactly where I was going here, ah. is that our freeways are packed. And people are in a panic to get places fast, and they are doing stupid, ridiculous things. 
putting my life and my property in jeopardy. And in doing so, I recognize that these people have no regard for my life or my property. And this makes me quite angry at them. And sometimes I wish that they would just go ahead and drive off the side of the road. And, so you, and, you've, you've, called, you've said you fool. Uh, and worse. <laughs> <laughs> Usually with so, a few expletives so added in. you're liable to the fires of hell for just simply a commute <laughs> on the freeway. Well, not just that. But the, the thing that I'm getting at here is that I think that we all tend to get really irritated at people and even hate people. Uh, and have visceral reactions in our hearts when people are doing ridiculous things and harming us or potentially harming us. And we we tend to try to justify these things in our own minds. You know, it's like, well, that guy, he he could have crashed into my car and caused all sorts of damage and killed me. And, and instead of maybe just giving him some space and recognizing this guy's in a rush, he's out of his mind, he's he's on drugs, I don't know. But uh, instead of just kind of giving him some space and assuming the best of him, uh, it's very common for us to not assume the best of him and wish harm upon him. And in doing so, we're breaking the fifth commandment. We're murderers. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's 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 this intensification or movement from the hands to the heart. Yeah, we're not talking about strangling somebody or or going out and shooting them, but we're we're talking about that hatred, that anger, that wishing the neighbor were dead, because he's really ticking me off. Yeah, and uh, Luther has a great way of summarizing this. I, I'm going to read from the Large Catechism, just a paragraph. He says the entire sum of what it means not to murder is to be impressed most clearly upon the simple-minded. He's got us in mind here. Simple-minded, right? That's me. In the first place, we must harm no one either with our hand or by deed. We must not, now get this, we must not use our tongue to instigate or counsel harm. I, hmm. At this point, I'm a serial killer with my tongue. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't I haven't done anybody in with my hands, but I, I shudder to think of the number of people that I've assassinated with my tongue. Well, that and also just, I think you should kick that guy's butt. <laughs> That would, that, that would kind of fit in. Well, you know, when you're not the biggest kid on the playground, you learn to defend yourself one way or the other. So I I couldn't defend myself with my hands, but I, I learned how to basically assassinate with the tongue. So that's that's my chief weapon. Well, and then when you are the biggest kid on the playground, which I usually was. You tear the other guy's tongue out. No, you know? no. There was always the little guy with the chip on his shoulders that wanted to beat you up. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it goes both ways. Lose, lose. <laughs> the playground. We have a preschool, and I, I, I'm always amazed. It's Lord of the Flies out oh, there yeah. with these preschool kids. Yeah. There's just this struggle for dominance and, and the – this fifth commandment's being shattered left and right on playground squabbles over who gets to go in the climbing rock next. Yeah, it's just amazing. You know what the great thing about boys is? Is that we can do that and we'll shove each other off the rock and add a few punches in and then we're best friends. I don't get it, but it's, it's, it's strange. Bonding. Yeah. It's bonding. That's what that's what boys do. The girls will hold a grudge for twenty years. They won't they won't talk. Well it's that. kinda like Shakespeare on the Saint Crispin's Day speech where he says, If you bleed with me, you're my brother. Maybe even if I make you bleed, you're my brother, kind of thing. We share blood here. Makes sense. Anyway. Again, more Luther. Finally the heart and, and here he goes from hands to heart, must not be ill disposed toward anyone or wish another person ill in anger and hatred. Then body and soul may be innocent toward everybody, but especially toward those who wish you evil 
or inflict such things upon you. Uh, reflecting Jesus, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Somebody strikes you on the one cheek, offer him, present him with the other. That's crazy. It, it is, well, you know, Jesus amplifies the law to the point where you 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 say precisely that. You say that's crazy. And and you know, his 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 response is that's what I do. Well, let me ask you this then. Does God forbid us protecting ourselves physically? Yeah, interest that's an interest you know, self defense is an interesting question. Yeah. Certainly defending another. We're called to do that. Okay. But self defense is that that's an that's an interesting interesting question there. And I don't have an interesting Boy, answer to that question. That's quite an answer. Is Thank you very interesting much. Interesting question. Well, all right. <laughs> for to do evil, I'm just going to keep reading here. For for to do evil to someone who wishes you good and does you good is not human but devilish. Okay. You have that sort of look on your face like uh, you've just been, been put in the wrong camp there. Yeah. I'll kick your butt later. <laughs> And so this commandment really judges our relationship to our neighbor and how we respond to his physical need. I think the other the other aspect that we need to look at, too, is is the common vocabulary that we use in in life, life issues. You you hear people talk about quality of life. Oh, yeah, that's a big one. And 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 that's that's a concept that's completely foreign to the scriptures and the way we speak of life because it's it's entirely pragmatic the idea is if as long as it's useful you're having a good time you're partying you're enjoying yourself he's doing what he loves then it's worth living otherwise there's no point in living you know? well that seems to be the way that people think these days and they're willing to pull the plug on you at any given moment if your quality of life isn't so good. Now, the opposite of that is is the sacredness or sanctity of life, which recognizes that no matter what it looks like to our eyes, all human life is sacred. All life is sacred in the sense that God is the giver of life, but human life is distinct. And, and that life is sacred, and therefore quality is a judgment we render on it. Whereas sacred says it's holy, it's from the Lord, and it's his business. So if he wants to kill you, that's his business. Well, now we get into the whole question of bioethics here in that there are those who their lives are being sustained through extraordinary means. And perhaps their quality of life isn't so good in that I mean that their misery is so great that had we not used these these heroic efforts— they would have died a long time ago on their own. So now we have the question of medicine. Are we sustaining life or are we prolonging death? That's, that's, a, that's a real tough question. Yeah, that, you know, that's a really good way of distinguishing it, too, is, is are we extending the dying process or are we, are we prolonging life in, in the hopes of, say, healing or something? I'll give you a good example. Uh, the... The ventilator. You put put somebody on the ventilator. I, I've had different. I've had different members of my congregation, known people who have been put on the ventilator. My dad was on one after uh, after open heart surgery. Now, in his case, it supported life until his strength returned, and 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 he recovered. That was a good thing. But I have known people who have been put on the ventilator with no hope of getting off. Right. And and then they the family and and that have to make that very difficult decision of quote pulling the plug as we like to say, 
Uh, and the, the question there is, is, is that the right thing to do? And, and I think you come into a situation where you say just because you can do something medically doesn't mean you must do something. Yeah. And, and I, I think one of the criteria is are, 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 you looking at, uh, are you looking at extending that person's life or are you, just, are you simply ducking the death? Because so, sooner or later they're going to die. Yeah. And that's, that's a very, very difficult decision. I, and I don't think there's any formula that's going to guide you there. That, that's something that each and every individual and, and every case has to be taken on its own. I've I've faced this question both as a pastor and and with my own father, uh, as he was at life's end. Uh, we were presented with a list of things that that we could do to keep him alive, although he was dying of cancer. So it might buy him a week or maybe two weeks, but you know. So there's the the G tube or uh, keeping him hydrated or just letting him go or or whatever. And and thanks be to God that. He went ahead and died that night before we could make the, mm. the decision. But I've seen it with parishioners. There's never a right answer. If if you say, no, let's use these heroic efforts to keep this person alive and the person dies anyway, then there's guilt that I was playing God and I, I tortured my you know father, brother, sister, whoever. And then on the other hand, if you pull the plug, I played God and I killed him. So th- there's there's never a real peace when you're stuck with these situations. There's there's always that difficulty of not knowing, you know, if you did the right thing or not. I think part of that I agree completely that that there's there's no real settled thing and there's always some uncertainty. And and I think the reason for that is that life is in God's hands and there's a, a strong element of mystery. We don't know everything about what it is that makes us alive and keeps us alive. We know some of the mechanics of biology. Uh, We're learning more and more about the intricacies of the human body. But here's an amazing thing, that we cannot really pinpoint with definitive certainty when life begins and when life ends. Yeah. Uh, We we simply, we punt on this, and, and we'll just simply say life begins at conception because that's something we understand biologically. Clearly, before you have the full complement of chromosomes, you're not going to have life. You're not going to have human life. But once you do, once you have a fertilized egg, at this point, we've got nothing to say except that this is, this is biologically the beginning of life, and we just, we just take that as, as a beginning. And the same at the end. Who is it that declares people dead? The, the, <laughs> the doctors doctor, pronounce yeah. them dead. They look at a clock. Uh, how do they measure that? Well, brain activity, heart, or whatever criteria they use. But who's to say that's actually dead, dead as God sees it? Well, correct me if I'm wrong on this one, but uh, the story of Lazarus, Jesus raising him from the dead, Jesus waits four days before he shows up because, as I understand, Jewish tradition was that after three days, the soul has clearly departed the body. Yeah. The, the, and that, so Jesus waits beyond the three days. He's really dead. Right. He's he's not just dead. He's good and dead. Yeah. He's, he's real dead. Well, that's where Martha comes in and says, <laughs> Jesus says, roll the stone away, open up the tomb. And her first response is, he stinketh. You know, he's been dead four days now. So there's there's that real strong undercurrent that, that Lazarus is as dead as dead can be. Yeah. It don't get more dead than this. So when he walks out of the tomb, there's clear something going on that's extraordinary yeah so here we have a case where the the jewish tradition says three days you know you can raise someone from the dead for three days apparently 
but after that, all bets are off. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. <laughs> Since that happened so much, I guess. So we have the other place where this we've we've talked about end of life and end of life decisions, and and I think those always have to be approached prayerfully. I think they have to be approached with with good advice, yeah. and 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 that includes your pastor. Uh, even medical ethical boards have clergy on on board. Yeah, I've been so, on one. It's not fun. What was that like? Awful. Really, you've I actually just, served on an on, on an ethical board. Yeah, for, yeah. Wow. In Connecticut, I got called into one. No and, kidding. And, yeah, it was uh, a decision that I really was not prepared to help make, and <laughs> one that I didn't really want to. Did, did did you did you think that you made a contribution to that uh, that process? I I did. Yeah, I think I did because uh, um, you know I did help the family with that balance as the decision was being made mm-hmm. one way or the other, and. And I think the fact that I did explain to them that there is no right answer on this and that you're going to actually probably feel guilt no matter what you do, and that's normal, and and just letting people know that this is a normal feeling that you're going to have, um, I think that that helps bring a little peace, knowing that they aren't freaks. And, yeah. And, you know. Yeah, that's, that's sound advice. I, I, I always think about an episode from ER that really stuck, stuck and it actually influenced part of my pastoral practice. Uh, ER the the TV show often has a a kind of um, they they have a good a good beat on life and death issues yeah and there's a scene in there where where somebody dies in the ER and they've gone through all sorts of heroic measures to save this person and I I forget the the character and what the nature of the death was but it was a, it was a young man and they go through all this effort to to save his life and they fail and he dies and often the background is this nun just watching she's she's just in the background lurking and watching and of course once the doctors pronounce him dead then they walk away they're done and there's all this this residue medical stuff around and they're kind of just cleaning up the mess and and everything else and this nun emerges from the background and she says may i and uh, they everybody kind of steps aside, and she comes up to this dead guy on 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 the the gurney there, and she bends down, whispers in his ear, "My brother in Christ," and she addresses him, and then she says this prayer. And now in the background are all the doctors and nurses hmm. just looking on at this little nun uh, praying and and speaking to this guy. And I, I thought that is that's exactly it, wow. where medicine is done. All there is is just medical garbage all over the floor and everything. They're done. They've the machines say it's over. This this nun comes with prayer and the word of God and addresses the man as brother in Christ and prays and com- commends him to God. And and I have done that now when I, when when I approach somebody who has died and everybody's you know hanging around there and they're all grief stricken and and when I bless them and and if I'm not there for for their death I will always address them my brother in Christ mm. or my sister in Christ and do that because it it acknowledges that medicine does not get the last word here yeah yeah you know god gets the last word as you know in my own experience with my father is that uh he was a doctor and medicine was very important to him, you know, and medicine is, is the answer for so many illnesses. But when you have terminal cancer, you only have one place to go. Right. And that's God. Yeah. And uh, when he died, God bless him, he, he died uh, 
just a couple minutes after I read the 23rd Psalm to him. And uh, he, he stopped breathing and everything. And we, we all left the room. I was the last one out. And I, I kind of grabbed his foot and I said, I'll see you real soon, Pop. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, this is where, where we Christians do have the upper hand on this. Yeah. We, we have death nailed. And I mean, I, all every pun intended. Yeah. You know, we're the only ones who can deal with death in the way of life. That, that for us, death is the way of life. Exactly. Thanks be to Christ. Well, and, and, and really, I mean, I... I I think that this sets us apart from so many other religions and beliefs is that we are a church of dying people, not living people. We're, we're preaching to the dying here. Uh, if you're looking for health and wealth and prosperity in this life, don't darken the doors of my church because I'm only preaching to people who are going to die. Yeah. I, I like to think there are images of the church as hospitals, say. And and we might get to that if we, we were going to talk about the, the Good Samaritan at some point. Some people kind of use that imagery. But I like to think of the church as hospice. Hmm. And that is the dying caring for the dying. Yeah. There's no, at, at that point, there's no notion of cure. Right. There's only that palliative care of the dying and embracing one's death, recognizing, in the case of the church, that this ends in life, thanks be to Christ. Hmm. But we've kind of drifted away yeah. from the commandment well, well, into the but, very cool area of dying, uh, of, of living in death. But, but uh, it all works together. You know, the other side of it is, is the whole abortion thing. Obviously, I alluded to it in the beginning. We, we simply have no grasp as to the mystery of life and how it begins. And so we just simply say that, you know, this is in God's hands. And that that life for us, as we understand it, begins at conception. We don't have any any clear. We don't have any anything that will clarify that. And it's it's God who is at work here. That we are fearfully and wonderfully made by the hand of God. And to mess around, uh, I like to think of the womb. That that's God's workshop. And you're messing around in the Lord's workshop. If you were to ask me why I'm pro-life, I would quote to you Psalm fifty-one five. From my very conception, was I sinful? That's kind of an amplification of sinfulness there. I, I agree. Uh, but David's saying I was sinful from birth and even from conception. Right. And and it's kind of, this is a proverbial way of speaking so that we, it drives the point home that we're utterly sinful. And even that unborn child in the womb is steeped in Adam's sin before that child can do one single bad thing. Yeah. Well, eh, <laughs> we're certainly born uh, with a nature that's turned in on ourselves. Right. You know, from the very moment that we emerge from the womb, feed me, change me, coo over me, dote on me, feed me, change me. That's right. <laughs> or I'm tired. Or I will lash out at you. Yes. And I will pitch a fit. And, and so we are all natural born murderers. Wow. You know, think of that first murder, Cain and Abel. You know, Cain, the, the, the murderer of his brother Abel, over their sacrifices. And so Cain's, Cain's offering of, of the fruits and vegetables, the, the yield, the produce of the land was not acceptable. We learn in Hebrews on account of faith. And Abel's offering of, of blood was acceptable. And so Cain gets the right idea. Cain gets the, the idea sort of. He says, ah, God wants blood offering. So he offers his brother. <laughs> it, it, well, <laughs> it kills his brother. And it kind of works. God protects Cain's life. Well, a greater sacrifice than a fellow human being. I, I don't know. Is there is one known uh, apart from Christ? Yeah. So it sure makes sense. Go for it. So, but. <laughs> Moloch. <laughs> <laughs> 
Ah, oh, gosh. Um, so when we're talking about abortion, we're talking about murder. We're talking about killing someone who has done nothing to you except uh, been a, a product of uh, perhaps bad behavior or uh, silly behavior or drunken behavior or just unplanned behavior. Uh, so why would we as a society justify such a thing? It, it doesn't make any sense. I, I, I'm not sure we can explain the why. I, I, I think we are protecting in our society our the rights of the self over and against the rights of the other. Mm. And, and I find it kind of surprising that in this country, especially that's built on things like the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that the right to privacy and to do as I please trumps the right of another to live. Let's pick up with that when we come back. You're listening to The God Whispers. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to The God Whispers. I'm Craig D'Onofrio. And I'm Bill Swirla. We're talking to you today about abortion, about murder, about the Fifth Commandment. Uh, Thou shalt not commit murder. We were talking about abortion when we left off and how it's almost incomprehensible in our society that here we are penalizing a baby that's unborn for the sins of the parents. And it's just you know, really kind of hard to believe that we've come to such a place where this is not only normal, but just widely accepted. I think there's, there's, there's the way society handles this and there's the way the church needs to speak about it. And, and really, I think that's where, where we ought to focus uh, is, is not so much the political aspects because that, that political side of things, what Lutherans call the left-hand kingdom is always messy business yeah, absolutely. Uh, because you're you're dealing with a first of all, you're dealing with a fallen world. You're dealing with sinners. You're dealing with human sin all over the place, and it's it's this kind of first use of the law that's just basically designed to put some reasonable curb on things. And that's why I left the world of politics to come into the church where there's obviously no politics whatsoever. <laughs> a topic like, like, for another discussion entirely. Notice I can't say that with a straight face. Yeah. The, the, <laughs> But you know, once we, when we move that that issue of, of the sacredness of life and the mystery of life uh, into the church, I think what is what is what is a gray area in the world becomes very black and white in the church, and people are uncomfortable with that that sharp edge black and white. Is that I, I'm of the opinion here, and it's not opinions too soft a word. I, I think we need to call abortion for what it is, and that is simply murder. Whether you feel it was justified or not, whether the circumstances brought you to think you, you had a right to do that or not, it is the unlawful taking of the life of another. And if we don't do that in the church, if we go political mm. and and soften it and look for loopholes and legalisms, we are really blunting repentance and really the ultimate healing for those whose lives are scarred by abortion. 
Oh, that's so, so important to uh, keep that in mind. You know, um, there are young women who get pregnant outside of wedlock, maybe in high school, their friends tell them, just go get it taken care of. Maybe their mom even says, we'll go get it taken care of. We don't want this thing ruining your life. And she grows up to have a tremendous amount of guilt over what she's done because perhaps she was even from the church and she knows that this is wrong. Yeah, the propaganda tries to tell you that's not so. That is so. And and yet the reality <laughs> is I think anybody who's honest is, will tell you that they live with that burden and that shame and that guilt for the rest of their life. And and here's the thing, and th- this is this is where the church really needs to play her strong suit, is that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. That includes our murders. Mm. And we need to bring those murders, whether they be of the tongue or the actual murders that some of us have committed or have, have aided and abetted. We've been accomplices to these things. Mm. And to bring them before the cross and, and, and leave them there, recognizing that Christ has borne, he has become the murderer in our place. Mm. Think, about, think about Jesus and Barabbas on the stage of Pilate. Barabbas is an actual murderer, an insurrectionist, a terrorist, a thief. And uh, and his life is swapped for Jesus' life. So the innocent man goes to an awful, the death of a murderer. He gets capital punishment enacted on him. Jesus does. And the guy who deserves it goes scot-free. And that's you and me. Yeah. And and so we, we I think we need to, to learn and to teach others to don't, don't hide from that sentence of God that calls this stuff murder and doesn't doesn't pull any punches doesn't doesn't cut any angles here just simply says confess it as murder and i will heal you isn't that amazing how that works you know the, the grace of god is great enough for adolf hitler it's great enough for charles manson it's great enough for the abortionist is great enough for the girl who had the abortion is great enough for the person who drove you to the abortion it's great enough for people driving on the freeway, flipping each other off. <laughs> it's, it's, God's grace is equally great for all of us. And to, you know, set one murderer above another is really a terrible thing for us to do. Or to put one, one murderer outside God's grace in Christ right. is to call into question God's grace in Christ. And that's why the intensification of the commandments are so important, because we talked about not just the hands, but the heart, not only the actions, but the attitude. And so if there is no room under the umbrella of grace for the murderer and the serial killer, then there may not be room under that umbrella for you and me, because the loss is equally guilty. Right. And and I, that's the other the other facet of it is I think the church needs to approach people whose lives have been touched in this way and harmed and scarred in this way, not in judgment, not carrying placards and condemnation, but again, in the way of a hospice, the dying caring for the dying, the sinner caring for the sinner, to say we're in the same boat here. Right. And and we know we know what this is about and and there is there there is there's healing. There's eternal healing. But the key is you can't mess around with God's law. Call it what it is. God God calls it murder. You say, I'm a murderer. 
Don't quibble with that sentence. Yeah. It, well, it's like our friend Mark Jason once told a guy, I'm not here to excuse your sin. I'm here to forgive your sin. Nice. And uh, sound know. pastoral. <laughs> that's a that's a sound. Even that's from a Marky. good pastor. <laughs> our good buddy. Well, yeah. And and that's really important for us to keep in mind, not not just as pastors, but with each other, that whole mutual consolation of the brethren. Someone is weighed down by their sin. It's incumbent on everyone to pronounce God's grace to each other here. I think when you enter the doors of the church, you ought to recognize that you have stepped out of that civil realm where things are messy and things are political and everybody's trying to get a majority vote so that their side can have its sway. And you're in this realm of law and gospel, of wrath and mercy, of condemnation and justification, and there's no middle ground here. Hmm. And, and and I think that's that's where the church sometimes falls down, is we're so interested in eradicating gross evil in the world, that first function of the law, keeping the lid on things, curbing things, that we forget the ultimate purpose of the law, and that is to drive us to Christ and basically to crucify sin in our flesh, that we die with Christ and we rise with him. And and so when people come through the doors of the church, they ought to be greeted by sinners welcoming sinners and saying, you've come to the right place. Isn't that right? You know, uh, the idea of church being a country club or even a, a membership type of organization where, well, I'm a member here, so I have certain rights and privileges as a member here. Sometimes that causes us to not reach out to those around us, to our brothers and sisters, to our neighbor. Remember the the Pharisees always took issue with Jesus' table company. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. Yet he associates with the outcasts. Jesus' word to them was, hey, uh, the the healthy don't need a physician, the sick do. I always, that whole tax collectors and sinners, I'm always sure to point out that there are two categories there. There are sinners and then there are tax collectors. And your point is? Tax collectors aren't even good enough to be sinners. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's a, a – moving on. I, 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 that, I wanna, was, that was awful. I, I want to <laughs> take the, the, the positive side of this commandment, look at it a little bit, help and support our neighbor in every physical need. Uh, Luther talks about this in terms of especially the care of the poor. Uh, reading again from the large catechism, he says, Second, a person who does evil to his neighbor is not only one guilty under this commandment, it also applies to anyone who can who can do his neighbor good, prevent and resist evil, defend and save his neighbor, so that no bodily harm or hurt happen to him, and yet he does not do this, the, the mm-hmm. sin of omission, mm-hmm. failure to act. Uh, if, therefore, you send away someone who is naked when you could clothe him, you have caused him to freeze to death. If you see someone suffer hunger and do not give him food, you have caused him to starve. So also, if you see anyone innocently sentenced to death or in similar distress and do not save him, although you know ways and means to do so, you have killed him. It will not work for you to make the excuse that you did not provide any help, counsel, or aid to harm him, for you have withheld your love from him and deprived him of the benefit by which his life could have been saved. Hmm. So, yeah, and that, that gets kind of rough because where we live, uh, every street a corner. A transients. Every street corner, every time I enter almost any, wherever I go pick up my prescriptions at the pharmacy, there's there's this guy that hangs out there. 
And uh, that's that's and I'm always coming to my collar too. Uh, being stiffed by a priest, it's just not <laughs> it's not good. And uh, I have to say that I, I've taken this practice, and I don't know your mileage may vary, but but I always give him a buck or a couple of bucks. I got it. I don't care what he does with it. If he's if he's just yanking my chain and not really poor, you know, if he's making $50,000 a year and, and I seriously doubt that, but if he is, then he's robbing from the poor and he can talk to God about that on his own. Well, I tell you, um, where I used to live out in Pasadena, right on the corner there, there was always this one guy who was there every day, every day on the corner. And I, and he'd be there for six hours at a time. I just a long time. And I used to wonder if he's got enough fortitude and sense to stand here for six hours panhandling, why doesn't he have enough sense to just go get a job and hold it? You know, it's funny. In 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 first century Israel, begging was considered a vocation. Yeah, it was a good job. Not a good job, but it was it was a vocation. It, it was a respectable job. If you couldn't do anything else to provide daily bread for your family, you could beg. Yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> Who's to say, huh? Well, this is where we can thank uh, the lawsuits and everything that shut down the insane asylums in California. Uh, you couldn't just have people committed anymore like you used to be able to. And the state stopped funding it and kicked them all out onto the streets. So it really was uh, one of those things that didn't do our society that much good because now you have a lot of just nutty people hanging out people with who, serious who can't hold jobs they because have, they're not they're not all there yeah they have serious physical needs there's a need of the body tied to the mind here and and no means by which to help them yeah they've they've literally just kind of turned them loose to fend for themselves and they can't but then again, you don't want to pay the taxes to do that. So, you know, people who can't take care of themselves, that's one thing. Mm -hmm. People who can but don't, that's a whole other thing. Yeah, but we're talking about the people in asylums who don't have the wherewithal really to care for themselves. No, and... I'm I'm not I'm not defending the shutting down of the loony bin. I, you know, I I think that uh, that was a bad thing because these people cannot take care of themselves. They're they're the burden of society. Be nice. We need mental to. health institutions. Ah, whatever. You know, I'll probably end up in one someday. Yes, yes. We, we're all about one step short of that. <laughs> that was very not politically correct of me. <laughs> but then again, when was I ever? Let's uh, let's talk about who my neighbor is because it does come up here because the question is, well, if I'm going to help and support my neighbor in every physical need, uh, how far does that extend? Next door, down the street, is there kind of a boundary to neighbors? So I, at least if I have a parameter for it, then I can do it. And that, that would take us to Luke chapter 10, where a synagogue lawyer, and you always have to watch when a, when a lawyer gets a hold of this. Not good. Not good. And But this would be an expert in the Torah. Lawyer is really not a good way of describing. He's, he is, he is a, a theologian. He is a, an expert in the Torah and looking for ways to make the Torah doable. Remember we talked about that. The Pharisees had 613 do's and don'ts out of the Torah. He's looking for this. And so uh, he asks Jesus, he says, well, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know, you, you, you know the Torah, you're an expert in it. What does it say? How do you read it? And he says, love God with all your heart, soul, and, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, A plus, hmm. you got it. You know, do this and you'll live. 
And and here's the key line then in verse 29, seeking to justify himself. There's the key. He asked this question, who's my neighbor? So mm. he figures he loves God. He's got that one. He's got that one nailed. Loves God with all his heart, soul and strength. And if as long as he knows who his neighbor is, he's going to get that one nailed too. And so then Jesus tells the story, familiar story uh, of a man who's going from down from Jericho or from Jerusalem to Jericho, a uh, road riddled with thieves, gets uh, robbed, stripped, left for dead in the ditch. And then three guys have a chance to be neighbors. So there's a priest who goes on the other side of the road. Levite goes on the other side of the road. And a Samaritan, everybody hates Samaritans, so of course he's the hero. And uh, he, uh, he bends down, bandages the man's wounds, puts him on his donkey, takes him to an inn, and uh, leaves some money at the desk. It's like leaving your visa card. And uh, he's got to answer to his wife when he gets home about that, but that's the outside the story. And uh, then the question comes from Jesus, so uh, who was neighbor hmm. to the man who fell among thieves? And the, <laughs> and the answer is the reluctant, the Samaritan, I suppose. <laughs> you know, no, he literally says the one who showed him mercy. He can't even say the Samaritan. That was, that's too much. But the priest and Levite had a good excuse. Well, they do technically under yeah. the law because right. if the guy's dead and they touch him, these guys are hosed because they have to come back to their hometown undergo an elaborate purification ritual. a lot of washing going on. Yeah, and then at the end, sacrifice some heifer, which is going to cost the town a fortune. Everybody's going to be ticked at them, and and they're going to be out of service. I like to say that only the guy who's free of the law can actually do it. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? You know, the the Samaritan who's got got no law. He's totally free, and so he can be neighbor to the man who fell among thieves. And then the big question comes in, where's Jesus in in the parable? What do you think? Is he the Samaritan or is he the guy in the ditch? Both. Oh, nice Lutheran answer. That, that <laughs> works. That works. And either or never is really a good so, answer. So usually. how is he like the Samaritan? Well, of course, he, he, he bandages our wounds. He heals us. He, he brings us back. He pays for it. Gets uh, down in the ditch gets, with us. Gets down at our level. Mm-hmm. Uh, is not too good for us. And on down the line there. Brings us, the church fathers said it, brings us to the inn of the church. Yeah. You know, and, and provides, pays our way. He does the whole thing. and But you said both. So so if you flip it around, how would you do it that way? Well, the man who fell among thieves is a, a type of Jesus also. He, he fell into our world of death and he dies our death. Literally between two thieves. Yeah. He's the man who fell among the thieves. Yeah. <laughs> You know, there's a there's a notion in the Bible that you, when you want to find the Christ figure, you look for the thing that looks most dead. Hmm. And and that guy was pretty dead in the ditch. I would say so. And uh, yeah, I go with the both and too. Though I, I tend to favor that latter one, that that the Christ figure is the guy in the ditch, only because the parable is about a law. It's a law parable. Because the ending is "Do it and you'll live." Hmm. You want to know who your neighbor is? Any guy that you cross that crosses your path. Yeah. No matter how inconvenient. Right. And can you imagine trying to get home from work on the freeway? <laughs> Anybody who crosses your path. And yet you're right because because Jesus became neighbor to us hmm. so that we might be neighbor to our neighbor. Right. And there's a flow there, one, one and the other. And and uh, and I think you have to get the both and otherwise you you don't really see the gospel in it. The gospel's not in the parable. The gospel's in the teller of the parable in Jesus. 
Luther said something similar. He said, he said, Christ is there to save us. And so, so he is our Samaritan, the guy who became our neighbor. And then he is in our neighbor to serve. So we are Christ for our neighbor. Yeah. Well, Jesus uh, exemplifies his service in so many ways as he comes into our world, you know, even to the point where he washes the disciples' feet. And Peter, being Peter, says, no, not me. And Jesus says, unless you let me do this, you have no part of me. He says, well, not just my feet, but my whole body. You know, wash all of me. That's the more is better. (laughs) And, And so Jesus demonstrates that even though he is God, who could have come as a king, as a ruler, as a, as, as you know, a magistrate born into a royal family, uh, the emperor of all of Rome or whatever. Instead, he comes lowly as one of us, and he comes not to serve or not to be served, but to serve. Right, and th- this idea of the God who becomes our neighbor, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. He's Emmanuel, yeah. God with us. God has taken up neighborly residence in humanity. And, and, and in so doing, he frees us from the obligations of the law in order that we might actually be as Christ to the neighbor, to, to bend down to the man who's broken and bloody in the ditch, and to see Christ in that broken man. So flesh out how all this works with thou shalt not murder. Flesh out how it all works with thou shalt not murder. We are murderers, first of all, in in our hearts, sometimes with our hands, by our neglect, uh, by our our silent acquiescence to the murder of others, and uh, and and we are convicted. If if this was the only commandment that there was, we didn't have ten. All we would have is number five. We'd still all be damned for it. <laughs> Even though I have never squeezed the life out of a human being. No. Yeah. But, but Jesus said, just say racha, which is a pretty coarse term. That's a that's that's basically you know, something you might shout to somebody who's just cut you off in the in the left lane on the freeway. Uh makes you liable to the fires of hell. So there's no pulling punches here. Again, it's that notion that it's it's black and white, it's law and gospel. And and this commandment alone would drive us to hell. But the, the, the news is Christ has become our sin. He has, he has become the murderer in our place. Wow. He, he was treated as one. He, he, received the, he received capital punishment for the sins of the world. And in so doing, he has purchased our acquittal. And so we stand before God declared not guilty for Jesus' sake clothed with his innocence. And he is the one that is the perfect neighbor. So again, like we were talking about in the fourth commandment, he's the obedient son. He's the perfect neighbor. And that perfect neighborliness of his becomes our gift. That's what we're clothed in. Powerful stuff. You consider that God would condescend in such a way that he would actually become sin, even though he knows no sin. It's crazy. No other system of religious thought like that. Yeah. Well, that's why Christianity does seem insane, because no no real God that we could invent, <laughs> which is a contradiction there, a real God that I could invent. Those would, are idols. Would ever do this sort of thing. And, you know, also the apostles, uh, if they invented a whole theology, 
they wouldn't have made themselves out to be such dopes either. But that's a whole other <laughs> that's a whole other program there. You know, back, back to Luther's Ten Commandments. Him, uh, the this this the verse on this commandment is is really good, and I think summarizes what we're saying. It goes like this: You shall not murder, hurt, nor hate. Your anger dare not dominate. That one clips me a little bit. Be kind and patient. Help, defend, and treat your foe as your friend. And appropriately, at the end of that, have mercy, Lord. Mm. I, I think the, the another aspect of this is, is, is we're reminded what true holiness is again. And, and, and that the holy works of God are terribly ordinary. When, when a mother or a father takes care of the physical needs of a child, this commandment calls that holy work. Luther talked about the, all these Carthusian monks and all of their disciplines and everything else. They don't hold a candle to the holy work that's, that's, that's given under this commandment where the simple physical needs, a cup of water to the thirsty, a bit of food to the hungry, these are, these are holy in the sight of God and praised. You know, one of the questions that people ask, and, and this is really going out of order because we're kind of wrapping up the program before we're wrapping up the program here. <laughs> um, people ask the question about suicide. Oh, yeah. And, and how that corresponds to this whole commandment. Oh, and, uh, you know, so many people within Christendom think that suicide is an unforgivable sin. And the reality is, I've known, I, I knew a really great pastor who committed suicide. He fell on very hard times, and he became deeply, deeply depressed, and he ended up killing himself. And in his suicide note, he wrote basically that he had no hope in life and he's placing all bets on Jesus in this one last act. So here he is, even in his killing of himself, which is clearly a sin, he's proclaiming Christ. It's really, really a, a strange and kind of weird thing. But I think this notion of suicide as the unforgivable sin stems from a, a mechanical or transactional way of looking at repentance, is how do you repent of killing yourself? Answer, you can't. But if you go that route, then any sudden death, even accidental, you're driving along in the freeway, somebody skips over the median, and you get plowed into headlong at 60 miles an hour. I d I'm not sure what your last words and thoughts are, but they may not be the holiest. <laughs> And and if you're going to play that game of of being able to repent before your life's end, then uh, you're going to leave you're going to leave a lot of people in doubt, and and it leaves the end of your life in in a in a rather doubtful state. And I don't. This is not why Jesus died on the cross, no. so that we could be in doubt. Luther, in his letters of spiritual counsel, I believe, says that anybody who takes their life is not clearly not in their right mind. I would agree with that. Or is captive to the devil in some way, but but not in the sense that they're damned. It's just that they they are not thinking clearly, and then they're not the, that note that you expressed is not really a that's not in that's not good theology. No, it's, I, I'm not defending it. <laughs> I'm just saying that it is this uh, this perplexity here that uh, here he is uh, at wit's end. He, he's lost all hope in this life, and he's clearly not in his own mind. And uh, yet, even in the midst of it, he's, he's you know, basically claiming Christ in, in a very strange way. But 
Well, there's a nugget of truth. That truth is that, that, that life that he seeks is found only in death. The untruth is that God has already declared him dead in baptism. You want to die, be baptized. Yeah. And, and that death that he desires is not one he can engineer or we can engineer for ourselves. We, we, are, we, are, given, we are given the death we're given. Yeah, I wish that we had a lot more time. We're coming down the last couple of minutes. But I, I liken this also to the martyrs in the early church. It became a, a point of pride and spiritual greatness if you were a martyr, and people were basically signing up at various points in time. And how is that any different than suicide? Well, they, they had to actually uh, issue some correctives there and, and yeah. tone this down. Right. Because it was one thing if you were carted away kind of against your will and rounded up. But once you start signing up for the, the, the thing, it, it, it takes on a different tone. Yeah. And, and that's that's clearly not uh, not not the intent of... Just one step removed from the whole, uh, uh, you know, strapping a bomb onto yourself, jihad kind of thing it, is it, not it's, too far from it's, that. It's flirting with that. And, and yeah, I, I think this is really saying we're not given, just, just as we don't have control over when we're born. Yeah. We are not given control over the circumstances and nature of our death. And to usurp that is really, again, that desire to be God in place of God. It's the nature of original sin. I hate to do it, but all our days, hours, minutes, and seconds are numbered, and this show is dead. And we need... <laughs> it's time to go. It's, it is dead. <laughs> and alive in Christ. Thanks for listening to God Whispers. We'll catch you next time.